right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast. ICU Ed, like education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast podcast. I'm Eddie, he is Todd, and here we go. Two programming notes before we begin. We've hit a little bit of a summer lull as far as new trials are concerned, which is great. Gives us a chance to go back and look a little bit at older trials and other studies that are more interesting to talk about because there can be a little bit more of a gray area. But Todd and I are butting heads on which ones to prioritize. So we want you to let us know if something interests you more. I'm going to list some really anything in the last few years, arbitrarily say three years, but let us know at ICUcast on X Twitter or at ICU at Toddcast at gmail.com. I'm going to go through this list. Do you want me to go through this list or do you have anything to add first, Todd? Let's do the list. Okay. So what did we come up with? We had median nerve stimulation in traumatic coma, intensive care medicine, methylene blue and septic shock in critical care, terlipressin for hepatorenal syndrome and doing journal, brain response to propofol recovery in coma from uh, AJRCCM or the blue journal, ischemic conditioning published in intensive care medicine, a glutamate for burns in New England journal, catheter-directed thrombolytics for PE and JAMA cardiology, and then thrombectomy timing and acute ischemic stroke. Well, actually, there's actually a couple, but both of them in New England Journal. It's a good list. It's a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah. So, let us, so certainly let us know if, if there's any of those that we can prioritize. Otherwise, you'll be at the mercy of whatever Todd decides. You don't want to be at that mercy. Yeah, right. So please, <laughs> please email us uh, or reach out to us otherwise. The second note is that we've heard some of your feedback listening to Todd drone on and on is boring. So we've got a couple of guests planned to talk about their recent work coming up. The first one, which we just got on the schedule to record, will be Matt Semler talking about the pilot trial, which looked at oxygen targets. Hopefully that'll be the next episode, but it will at least be, you know, soon, quote unquote, air quotes. That's what's coming up. Let's go back for a second. Last episode, we talked about phenobarbital and alcohol withdrawal. We were- Peepaws. Peepaws. That's right. Peepaws. We were emailed by Matt, who stated that where he trained, phenobarb was being used for alcohol withdrawal for a while and noted that part of the additional benefits of phenobarbital over benzodiazepines is that they provide additional glutamate inhibition, which reduces the likelihood of withdrawal seizures. He also noted that they had the ability to get therapeutic levels of phenobarbital where levels of 15 uh, or more prevents the seizures where the sedating and respiratory depression side effects come in around levels of 25 to 30. I don't think many places have the ability to get those levels or in a way that's like informative to practice. Matt even said that his current institution doesn't have that. Uh, we don't. Uh, it seems like a, it would be a nice thing to have. Yeah, potentially. I mean, for me, it's I don't need a drug level to tell me if the patient's sedated or not. Yeah, but it'd be nice to like if you're you can start a little bit lower and then potentially titrate up. I mean, for a drug that has a half life of like eighty hours, uh, it might be nice to start a little bit lower as opposed yeah. to the big doses that we're recommended to give. So you're saying maybe I could gently sedate the patient instead of having them be comatose for four days. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. Yeah. I looked it up on up to date and I was a little bit surprised. I knew it was long, but I didn't realize it was Yeah, it's forever. Yeah, it's a long, long, long time. Phenobarbital and amiodarone. Yeah, amiodarone's forever. Two drugs that you never get rid of. Yeah, the half life for amiodarone is like thirty days. Yeah. So so we talked a little bit about the future and the past, but there's nothing like the present. Today, we're going to be talking about the waterfall trial, which is about uh, fluid resuscitation and pancreatitis. For our old article, we're going to stay on the, quote, classics of medicine kick that we've been on and still talk about fluids in some sense and go over early goal-directed therapy and sepsis, colloquially known as the Rivers trial, named after its first author. First, waterfall. Todd, I think, is primarily interested in acronym grades and will interrupt me if I try to move forward. So we'll start there. You know, Todd, I didn't really get this one. Uh, in the paper, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. In the paper, they have 
waterfall followed in parentheses by, quote, early weight-based aggressive versus non-aggressive goal-directed fluid resuscitation in the early phase of acute pancreatitis in open-label multicenter randomized controlled trial, end quote. I recognize that the trialists are all from non-English-speaking countries, uh, India, Italy, Mexico, and Spain, so the acronym might make sense in the native language, but I'll say that waterfall is clearly an English word. Yeah, I think this may be an example of, hey, let's come up with an acronym and then see if we can title the study to fit the acronym. But I don't even know how you how you got there, right? Like there's a W for weight, Yeah. there's an A in aggressive, I guess you get the T-E in directed, and then R in resuscitation. And then I got lost because the only F is in fluid, but that's before the word resuscitation. So you're thinking it should be waftarl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not even going to pretend to know how, that I know how they got there. Overall, the concept of waterfall in trying to aggressively fluid resuscitate somebody, I mean, it's a nice image. Yeah, but there's like other water related imagery that you could be using. Other than waterfall, something that might work a little better. Like deep water diving or? Yeah, deep water diving, deluge. Ooh. 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 That's a word. Go on. Hold on for a minute. I'm going to have to look that. Let me Google that one. I've been studying for the SATs if you haven't recognized. Perfect. Is there, on that studying for the SATs, is there a deluge is to waterfall as? Yeah, I think I got the rid of analogies, Todd, from the SAT. Is that right? It's been like 70 years since you took them. Did you even take them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely took them. Although when I took them, there were only two parts to them. I understand there are three parts now. Yeah, I had to take three parts. I was one of the first years to do that. Um, yeah, C minus is for me. I appreciate. I think I, C minus is pretty generous. Yeah, I appreciate the imagery, like you said. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I really didn't get it. Yeah, that's fair. I'll, because of the imagery, I'll agree with your C minus. Although, I mean, you get knocked down pretty hard when the acronym we can't even make from from the title. Yeah. Oh, actually, I did get some feedback that not everybody understands letter grades. So four out of ten. We're going to oh, change the interesting. Numbers. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Four out of 10. Um, yeah, I probably am closer to 4.1, but <laughs> out of 10. Good. Doesn't come close to PPOS. PPOS was- It was a solid 4.2 out of 10. I think it was probably a solid nine. Uh, pancreatitis, like most diseases, you know, it doesn't make it to the ICU uh, all the time, but when it does, those patients are really sick. Uh, and we start thinking about ARDS, sepsis, it, abdominal It does when you aggressively fluid resuscitate. Yeah, abdominal compartment syndrome. <laughs> Basically, the only treatment we have is aggressive fluids. I was told when I was training, you know, quote, back in the day, that they would give fluids until patients were intubated and then they keep going. I never did that personally. I wonder if that's just unrecognized ARDS. I couldn't find that reference when I was prepping for this pod, but it serves its goal as an illustrative example. You went and actually looked for the reference that said, give fluids until you innovate them and then keep going? Yeah, it wasn't a really, really successful Google search. Yeah, I'm amazed you couldn't find it. <laughs> uh, what I did find, and this is summarized succinctly in their introduction, was that there was a correlation between hemoconcentration and pancreatic necrosis. And I found a lot of old studies that had a variety of flaws uh, not worth going over now. Uh, these authors had a cohort study in 2011 suggesting aggressive fluids was associated with poor outcomes. And there was a 2017 multicenter observational study suggesting no correlation between early aggressive fluids and improved outcomes. I wonder, I'm going to go someplace that our younger listeners may be like, what, where is he going? But, you know, I'm old enough that when I went through medical school, we learned the ransom criteria for pancreatitis. And I know we don't do it anymore. And whenever I try and bring it up on rounds, I get this glassy eyed look and a couple people actually faint and, you know, pass out and that sort of stuff. I'm pretty but, sure Todd, it's Ranson. Uh, and it was developed as the guy was from NYU, which we went to med school. That's why I know that. How do you spell it? R-A-N-S-E-N, I think. The criteria. <laughs> but I wonder if 
those criteria are associated with worse outcomes. And I wonder if part of this was we recognized that and then we thought, and sometimes we think this and it's just not right. We thought if you could prevent or maybe mask some of those criteria, like one of them, right, is an increase in your BUN, there's a fall in your calcium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But some of those criteria, I think you might be able to either prevent or mask by aggressive fluid resuscitation. But I just wonder if trying to treat with those criteria in the background might have led us to believe that more fluid resuscitation was the correct strategy in these patients. Yeah, this is the association or causation argument, right? I just looked it up. It's R-A-N-S-O-N, but it's not ransom or whatever you said. It's ransom. Like you hold the patient hostage until they pay you with some organ failure and then you stop giving them fluid. I think that's not the correct interpretation there. But yeah, no, it's the correlation versus causation argument, right? Just because this is associated doesn't mean that we can intervene upon said thing and make things better. Yeah, absolutely. This falls under the kind of one of those categories of based off that history, someone should study it topics. And so I'm glad they did. Who were these patients? The inclusion criteria here was interesting, I think worth spending some time on. They were adult patients from 18 centers in four countries who had pancreatitis defined by two of the three criteria. And I think this is pretty standard. Two of the three of abdominal pain, typical to pancreatitis, a lipase three times the upper limit of normal, or imaging consistent with pancreatitis. They had to be early in their hospital presentation, so within 24 hours and enrolled early into the recognition, so within eight hours of diagnosis. The exclusions are important here. They excluded patients who were severe to start, so that includes shock, respiratory, renal failure, or those who you would be judicious with fluids anyway. So that included the not uh, New York Heart Association, class two, three, or four heart failure, which is effectively heart failure with any symptoms at all, and decompensated cirrhosis and chronic renal failure. There were more, but those were the ones that jumped out to me. So the patient population, uh, right off the bat, is not necessarily the patients that we're seeing, but they are the patients that we do see and have complications that could be attributed to too much fluid, so it's still important to know. Yeah, I think we, we'd see some of these patients, but the majority of them are probably being cared for outside of the ICU on the general medical or surgical floor. Yeah. Well, I mean, here, here's one of the questions, Todd, knowing that this is not a directed at ICU patients trial... Uh, what what about this trial piqued your interest as far as just in general and also wanted to talk about it? Well, I mean, I think it fits a lot of the mantra of what we've discovered in our ICU trials, which is, is that we have a practice pattern that's based off of our best knowledge and our best understanding of physiology. And then when we go and actually study that, it turns out that either, and this is the best case scenario, it doesn't work. Or worst case scenario, it actually turns out that we were entirely wrong and what we thought we should do, we should, is bad for patients and we should be doing something different. And so I think, you know, this studied a practice that I think was pretty ingrained in clinical care of these patients. And we, we being the medical community thought was the right thing to do for the patients. And then when we study it, we find out more information and find out, you know, maybe we weren't as smart as we thought we were. And maybe we didn't really have uh, the best understanding of how to treat these patients before we did this study. 
Yeah, and we'll get to it at the end, but I also think that this does impact how we'll care for these patients in the ICU as well. Yeah, I agree. I, the The exclusion of the most severe patients is interesting, but I don't think it means that the answer that we got in the less severe patients doesn't necessarily apply to the answer in the more severe patients. It may not because they were excluded, but I don't think we can just dismiss it out of hand and say, well, the patient with pancreatitis and respiratory failure or shock is an entirely different patient population. We should treat them in an entirely different way. Yeah, and we'll get to the uh, generalizability and applicability to our population when we after we go through the results. So uh, what did they do? So they randomized patients to aggressive versus moderate fluid therapy groups. The aggressive group got 20 cc per kg bolus and then 3 cc's per kg per hour. And the moderate group uh, got 10 cc per kg bolus if they were determined to be, quote, hypovolemic, and then 1.5 cc's per kg per hour infusion. So I think it's probably worth talking about what we do and what is typical here and how they match up to those groups. I think I'm, at least was, pretty firmly in that aggressive group. Thinking about 200 to 250 cc's per hour of fluid was probably a good guesstimate for what I gave when I'm taking care of pancreatitis patients. Yeah, I think I'm probably, and you know, my practice over the course of time has, in general, trended towards giving less fluid than you know when I was a fellow or when I was a resident. So I, I think the I think there's a little disconnect for me in the fact that the bolus I'm for sure in the aggressive group, right? Twenty mils, twenty mils per kilo is a liter and a half. That doesn't even seem like much fluid in these pancreatitis patients. The two hundred and fifty mils an hour I think is probably more than than I give. And so I'm trending towards the aggressive, but someplace kind of in between. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, to say, a 70-kilogram yeah, person. There is, there is no such thing as a 70-kilogram person. It's a unicorn. Uh, and maybe that's because of where I practice. But, you know, for me, when I start just estimating patients' weights, I just, first of all, math is easier. So I use 100. At first, I did that because the math was easier. And then I started looking at my patients and I was like, 100 is probably not even high enough, but at least it's easier math. Well, I take 100 in the moderate group, that's 150 cc's per hour, which I think is, for me at least, it's lower than the numbers that I usually get, at least to start. Yeah, you've always been more aggressive than me. <laughs> I don't think that's true, Todd. Their uh, protocol had a couple of volume status assessments, hypovolemia, normovolemia, and suspicion for volume overload. Volume status in medicine is that kind of weird blend of subjective and objective measures. The measurements are often indeterminate or otherwise contraindicatory to other pieces of information and typically falls under a lot of gestalt. Um, so how did they define it, I think is important. It's in their appendix. Uh, hypovolemia included physical exam findings of hypovolemia, like dry mucosa and decreased skin turgor, labs like a hematocrit of greater than 44%, a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 um, without any other explanation, and that all seems reasonable. The creatinine criteria were a little bit broad, I think. It was a creatinine of greater than 1.1 or a BUN of greater than 20, uh, or any increase in creatinine or BUN from the previous value. Volume overload was having some evidence of heart failure, either on echo or cath or imaging with pulmonary congestion, with heart failure signs or symptoms like dyspnea, peripheral or pulmonary edema, increased JVP. Uh, that's a little bit more straightforward to me. Any thoughts on hypo, hypervolemia, any creatinine elevation could be hypovolemia? I mean, you can critique these criteria all you want. You may say, well, I would use a BUN to creatinine ratio, or I would use this, or I would use that. They're, they're perfectly reasonable. I agree with you, and I love the way you said it, that both hypo and hypervolemia, sometimes there are some really objective signs, but every definition, there are subjective signs. And, you know, for me, for example, the subjectivity of does the patient on a chest x-ray look like they have some cephalization? Do they look like they just might be a little bit full? And I think you and I see that a reasonable amount in a patient who 
you know, seems to be breathing quite fine and is still on room air. And, and does, doesn't, it, does it support what I wanted to say about the patient? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's always some, I agree with you, there's always some subjectivity in these, but I think they're their definitions are, we can at least put them in the quote unquote reasonable. Bucket. Yeah. I think for me, I, I'm not sure I could really come up with a definition of hyper and hypovolemia that is clearly better. Um, so I don't really have too much of a bone to pick with them necessarily. Yeah, I think that's fair. The primary outcome was developing moderate or severe pancreatitis, uh, which was defined as uh, local complications, uh, exacerbation of a chronic condition, or creatinine of at least 1.9 milligrams per deciliter, systolic blood pressure of less than 90, or P to F ratio of less than 300. That all seems reasonable here. The main safety outcome was fluid overload, which we already went over. I don't have too much to say. I'm gonna, I'll move on if you're good with that, Todd. I will say this. I think their criteria for moderate or severe pancreatitis are pretty objective. You know, creatinine, it's what's the number, right? It's not my interpretation of the number. It's what is the number. Their criteria for the safety of volume overload, I think, are much more subjective. And does that raise any red flags or otherwise having a more subjective outcome? No, I don't think it raises any red flags. I think you'll hear as we get a little further into this podcast, it colors my interpretation of the results a little bit. That's fair. That's fair. Their table one is their baseline characteristics. 249 total patients were randomized with 122 to the aggressive group and 127 to the moderate. The median age is 56. The BMI is 27. And about half in each group had hypovolemia to start. There were more females in the aggressive group, 55 versus 46%. And perhaps not surprisingly, there were more diagnoses of gallstone pancreatitis in that group, 65 versus 55%. I don't think there's any large reason to think that the fluid resuscitation strategy would differ by the cause of pancreatitis. Maybe there's more infection with gallstones compared to alcoholic or triglyceride-induced pancreatitis, but I feel like that difference is kind of small. I am not a pancreatitis expert, but I'm in the same viewpoint as you, which is I'm not entirely sure that that level of imbalance in the baseline demographics has a big influence on any of the outcomes that we're going to be looking at. Scorpion stings, Todd? That's my most uh, favorite etiology of pancreatitis. Have you ever seen one of those? A scorpion sting? Causing pancreatitis. Uh, I've never actually seen a scorpion sting. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I will say this. I have seen a lot of pancreatitises where we didn't know the etiology, and one of those could have been a scorpion sting. It could have been a scorpion sting. It could be anything, right. even a scorpion sting. That's correct. There you go. You know, not all patients remember being stung by a scorpion. <laughs> their, uh, they probably do. Never mind. <laughs> their separation between groups was relegated to their supplement. It was a median of 7.8 liters compared to 5.5 liters, uh, which still seems like a lot in each group. So the moderate group of 5.5 liters. Uh, then I'll take table two and three together. This was their primary, secondary, and safety outcomes. There was no difference in the primary outcome of moderately severe or severe pancreatitis, uh, 27% in the aggressive group and 22% in the moderate group for a relative risk of 1.28 and a 95% confidence interval, which crosses 1, 0.77 to 2.12. The long and the short of the remainder of their outcomes is that the confidence interval crosses one for all of them. So SIRS at different time points, invasive treatment, ICU admission, nutritional support, but as long as I'm speaking in generalizations, every outcome and complication seem to be more prevalent in the aggressive strategy. As far as the safety outcomes are concerned, uh, which is interesting that they gave me p-values here, there was more fluid overload in the aggressive group, 20.5% versus 6.3% with a p-value of 0.004. 
And then there was more signs of fluid overload, which encompasses peripheral edema, uh, pulmonary rolls, and increased JVP. This was 26.2 versus 11% and a p-value of 0.003. So uh, it's a neutral trial. Uh, the point estimates favor the moderate strategy, and the safety outcomes also favor the moderate strategy. Yeah, so a couple comments. One is that uh, the reason they give us p-values for safety is, I think, because that's viewed as a high enough priority that it's viewed as sort of its own analysis. And it's not viewed as multiple comparisons with the efficacy analyses because it's sort of a different question than the efficacy analysis. Although in here, you could say maybe there's some overlap. But so I think that's why, you know, the New England Journal is a stickler about what they'll let you put a p-value on. But I think that's why they allowed them to put p-values on the on the safety outcomes. Uh, I think you summarized it pretty well. From the overall efficacy, it's neutral, right? There's no defined winner here. They appear to be very, very similar in the the outcomes in the two groups. And then the safety stuff, and I told you I looked at this with a little bit of a of a different uh, different lens, knowing that many of the safety things, many of the safety outcomes are are somewhat subjective in this open label trial where I know I gave somebody eight liters of fluid versus five liters of fluid. And so my overall interpretation is, is that I think these probably are pretty similar and I'm not exactly sure how much there really is a safety signal here in the aggressive side. Having said that, I think, you know, I'm one of these pragmatic clinical people that says, if I don't have evidence and it appears that the aggressive fluid resuscitation is not benefiting my patient, why should I do it? And so I'm sort of thinking these data drive me towards the more moderate resuscitation anyway, regardless of whether or not the safety signal is real or not. Yeah, I mean, this is not the right way to think of it, but the worst possible— But you'll say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. The worst possible like interpretation of this is, well, maybe there's no difference between these strategies, but doing a moderate strategy makes me feel better, right? Subjectively, I think the patient is doing better. Yeah. So. Why would I do an aggressive strategy? And it's all about how we feel. Absolutely. Uh, So I think the big question for us, and this is what I alluded to before, is, well, it's actually twofold. Uh, First, more generally for the study is, can you generalize this to the populations that they excluded? Uh, I think specifically I'm interested in the heart failure, the cirrhosis, the CKD patients, the patients who are higher risk for volume overload anyway. Yeah, I mean, those patients I think would have been really hard to know what to do with had the aggressive been better. Right. Because then you would have been like, okay, am I going to aggressively resuscitate my heart failure patient? You know, I think those, I think the the authors say that you would normally judiciously use fluids in, and I think you're going to continue to judiciously use fluids in those and maybe feel a little bit better about, you know, this is probably the right thing to do because they have a disease that fluids may be bad and fluids don't appear to be the answer to their pancreatitis anyway. It's, it's all about how we feel. What about the severe group that they yeah, excluded? That's what I was just about to ask. No, uh, you weren't. Yes, you I was. Not. You you claim to not look at my outlines, but you do. I, I feel like that I feel, like you said, better about not pushing fluids even when they're showing signs of volume overload. So the severe group, there might be other things going on as far as sepsis and hypovolemia. Um, but before... I felt pressure to continue to deal with low levels of volume overload because that's the, quote, best thing for the pancreatitis. And now I feel like once I've resuscitated them from a volume status standpoint for their sepsis, of course, this trial said not to con- didn't say didn't say not to continue to give fluids. But if I start to see signs of volume overload that are distressing, that I, I wouldn't feel bad slowing down or stopping. Yeah, it was a slower, not a no yeah. fluid administration. Yeah, I mean, I think the the exclusion of the severe group 
and whether we can extrapolate these results to them. You know, for me, the respiratory failure is pretty easy, right? I'm a believer that in general, respiratory failure is not a fluid responsive condition and it doesn't respond to aggressive fluid anyway. And so, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine at extrapolating these results to that exclusion. The shock and the renal failure, I think, are a little harder because, you know, maybe the shock should be getting fluid from a shock standpoint, and maybe the renal failure is a little pre-renal and it might get better with some fluid. But you should be giving fluid for those reasons, right? Uh, yeah, Not agree. the pancreatitis. Yeah, completely agree with you. So, you know, if I give, and I, I don't think I ever do this, but sometimes what we say we do and what we actually do in practice are different. But if I give, you know, seven liters of fluid to the severe pancreatitic patient that has uh, shock, or the severe patient with pancreatitis and renal failure uh, for their shock or renal failure, you know, okay, at least I was, I was doing something other than just giving it because the pancreatitis, because the patient had pancreatitis. Is pancreatitic the adjective form of pancreatitis? Yeah. I, I went away from that actually, because, um, you know, I'm not the most politically correct person ever, but I do think there's something about uh, labeling patients like that and calling the patient a pancreatitic instead of a patient with pancreatitis. And so for all of the people that were offended by the use of the term pancreatitic, you can just substitute in their patient with pancreatitis. Just so you know, I tried to Google it. Pancreatitic does not show up in the dictionary. Yeah, that's why I asked. I think this is a little bit more common of the situation that you and I see, but the patient is mid the floor first with pancreatitis, and then they get worse despite standard of care, and then they come to see us in the ICU. What are you doing with those fluids? I think that's the better well, question. Well, first you hop with the patient into the time machine, and you go back to their initial admission to the floor, and you decrease their fluids that they're getting. No, I'm just kidding. Um I still think unless I am treating something specific other than pancreatitis, uh, I'm not giving that patient a bunch of fluids. And if the patient is on the ventilator, has some respiratory failure, what looks like maybe ARDS, and does not have renal failure and is not in shock, I may be, I'm probably diuresis in that patient, to be honest with you, even though, you know, they have severe pancreatitis because. Is this a situation of uh, what's going to kill them first? Like what's what's worse right now in this moment? They have two problems. They're opposite treatments, right? Diuresis versus giving fluids. Yeah. Um, and you could just do nothing um, or you could pick one and go for it. You right? could just stand there and do nothing. You could stand there and do nothing. Don't just do something. Stand there. Yeah. But to me, the concept here I think is important, which is to me, the concept here is, is that patients – severity, duration, outcomes from pancreatitis do not appear to be fluid related. And so I'm not purposefully going to be doing something with the fluids for specifically the pancreatitis. And I think that just means what fluid strategy I'm choosing is based off of what else is going on with the patient. All right. So Todd introduced a time machine and we're going to hop back into that time machine. We're going back to November of 2001 for Early goal-directed therapy in the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Emmanuel Manny Rivers. I think we've done the young and old and what were you doing at that year bit to death. So let's switch it up. Uh, Todd, you get a choice. Top songs or top movies from November of 2001. Well, I'm going to be bad at all of these. Uh, I'm going to be really bad, I think, at songs and probably close to really bad, but maybe a little bit better in top movies. All right. So I'm going to give you the tagline to the top three movies of November 2001, and you're going to tell me what the movie is. I'm going to just bet 
as we start that I go zero for three. I think you'll get two. An orphan boy enrolled in a school of wizardry where he learns the truth about himself, his family, and a terrible evil that haunts the magical world. Okay, that's going to be a Harry Potter, but there's like 47 Harry Potter movies, and I have no idea which one was 2001. There's eight. It was the first one. In order to power the city, monsters have to scare children so they scream. However, the children are toxic to the monsters, and after a child gets through, two monsters realize things may not be what they think. Uh, is that Monsters, Inc.? Thank you. Uh, and then this one I don't think you'll get. I love, I love how you choose the easy ones for me. <laughs> this one I don't think you'll get. A shallow man falls in love with a 300-pound woman because of her inner beauty. That's all I get? That's the only clue? That's the entire tagline. Hmm. And it's not going to be the Oversize Me movie? No. Super uh, Size Me? Yeah. No, that was a documentary, wasn't it? I thought he, the whole point was he was doing that for the movie. Anyway. It was um, Shadow Hal, which I had never heard of before. Yeah, Shallow Hal. I I will admit that I actually heard that title. I never saw that movie. Um, but uh, I was alive in 2001 and apparently aware enough of movies that uh, if you said to me, was there ever a movie called Shallow Hal? I would have said, yeah. I couldn't have given you the year, but I could have told you it was a movie. And then you were like, oh, I'm interested. What was it about? Uh, I I could have told you a guy named Hal. Uh, so one and a half out of three. Uh, we'll get back whoa, on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One and a half. You didn't get the right Harry Potter. Oh, I think that's good fair. Lord. I think half is, I think a half is generous there. One out of three is what I would actually do. Uh, back on topic, kind of. Uh, we call it the Rivers Trial. There's no acronym here. What acronym would you give it, Todd? I don't know that we call it the Rivers Trial. I call it the Rivers Trial. I thought we always called it EGDT. Oh, that's another one. Which was early goal-directed therapy, which obviously fits the acronym, fits the phrase nicely. EGDT is not all that pleasant rolling off of your lips, but... I like E-GOAT. E-early, G-O-A, goal, and T, therapy. E-GOAT. You just made that up, though. Nobody's ever called it E-GOAT. No, no one has, but this is this is the name of the game, making up acronyms. Um, E-GOATS, for, E-GOATS gets you sepsis in there. For Rivers Trial, which was your acronym... I give it a five because that's the default value and I don't want to move the bar. Uh, for EGDT, I give it a five and a half or six. How about EGOATS? Uh, EGOATS, I give it two. Oh, my God. Uh, this time I mean it back on topic. Uh, EGOATS randomized 263 patients with severe sepsis or septic shock, probably would just be considered sepsis in today's sepsis three criteria, to a six-hour protocol of early goal-directed therapy versus standard of care in the emergency department before they got to the ICU. We don't need to bury the lead here. In-hospital mortality was 30.5% in the intervention group compared to 46.5% in the control group for a p-value of 0.009. The intervention group had higher central venous sats, lower lactates, higher pH, and lower Apache 2 scores. Uh, I have a couple of points I want to make, Todd, but what interests you when you think about this trial? How many patients in that study had pancreatitis? I, I'm sure that's not something that interests you about that trial. Um, the, the, biggest, the, the biggest question, the biggest interest when this came out was what was their usual care group and what constituted their usual care group. And it was, and it still is, it's just hard to know from the data that are provided. And I think the data that they collected in that group, it's just hard to know what was the care that was being provided to the control arm. And it's important because, you know, the question when this came out was how much should I change my practice based off of this? It's hard to know if you don't know exactly what the practice looked like in the control group. So I think that conversation, 
train of thought that you were on there kind of leads lends itself into like the promise process and arise you want to without going into too much detail want to summarize that before we go there let me say the other thing that i think is off of people's radar screen and i'm pretty sure it was off of my radar screen for a while but we think of this as early goal directed therapy and septic shock yet a little bit more than half of the patients did not have low blood pressure you could get in here with an elevated lactate or low blood pressure. And a little bit more than 50% of the patients got in with an elevated lactate and did not have low blood pressure. And so I think keeping that in mind and understanding that, you know, your patient that has bad sepsis, call it septic shock or not, uh, and SEP3 criteria now, right, require both low blood pressure and an elevated lactate. But I think the patient who doesn't have low blood pressure, but has an elevated lactate from their sepsis, I think that patient's pretty sick. And I think this at least put that on my radar screen of a, whoa, wait, the lactate's four and a half. Although this patient doesn't have a low blood pressure and I may be like, yeah, they've got infection. Let's give them antibiotics, et cetera. Maybe I should view this patient as more sick than a patient who looks like that, who doesn't have an elevated lactate. Promise, arise, process, and process. There was lots of controversy about the river study or EGDT. And lots of that controversy was centered around a couple of things. One is, should we be this aggressive in our patients? Did they really need things like dobutamine and transfusion of packed red cells? And then the second was this continuous SVO2 monitoring catheter that was placed in all of the patients in the early goal-directed therapy intervention arm. And there was lots of pushback about whether or not we really needed this this measurement and a continuous measurement of this SVO2. And I think those two things led to three independent groups from different countries all doing similar trials where they were like, I'm going to do a larger sample size and I'm going to study the concept again of does early goal-directed therapy, both the interventions with the fluid, the dobutamine, the, the packed red blood cells, and the use of the catheter, does that really make a difference in my patients? And all three of those actually found that there wasn't any difference when that aggressive nature with the catheter was used. But there's a little bit of a nuance in interpreting them in the fact that practice had changed a little bit because of the, because of the, what you call the reverse trial being published. And I think if you look at promise, uh, process and arise, you'll see that in their control arm, patients, I think, were treated closer to their intervention arm than I think they were in the reverse trial. Although, as we already talked about, it's a little hard to know exactly what the patients in the control arm in the reverse trial were treated like. Um, and so I think that's the the overriding kind of take home of process arise and promise. Do you think EGT or rivers or egoats changed the practice to that point? So the later trials, the usual care didn't didn't show a difference? Yeah, I'm I, I'm highly confident that it changed our practice. It didn't in many places, our institution being one of them, result in us buying these catheters and using the continuous catheter. I've actually never used one in my career. But I think it did result in us more aggressively giving fluid to target a CVP. We you know, would use packed red blood cells and dobutamine according to the protocol. And so I think it changed the practice of how we resuscitated these patients, but not necessarily the continuous monitoring as we resuscitated these patients. Yeah, the fluids is interesting. I had thought before I had like sat down and really dove into it that there was more fluids given in the intervention group in this trial. And it was that there was more fluids in the first six hours, five liters versus three and a half. But when you got out to 72 hours, they both had the same amount of fluids, which is a lot, 13 and a half. Um, but the fluids evened out over time. 
how many lectures of mine have you been in where I've talked about the Rivers EGOATS EGDT trial? Uh, that I've been paying attention? Well, first, how many have you been in? Because the paying attention part is pretty obvious because I talk about that when I talk about this trial, which is, as you're right, there was not overall more fluid given. It was just that more fluid was given in the early stages, the first six hours of this trial. Uh, and that, I think, prompted people to give more fluid in the early stages of the of the trial. Now, it also goes along with during that time, there was a big push for making sepsis a time-sensitive condition, you know, much like myocardial infarction and stroke. And, you know, in in that time of uh, medicine, we had phrases that said, you know, time is heart in the MI or time is brain in stroke. Uh, and there was lots of talk in the sepsis world about we should say time is tissue in sepsis because time matters. And so I think there was already a increased focus on that early part of the treatment. And then these data suggesting that you know, giving more of that fluid in that early part, instead of just giving it all over the course of 72 hours, uh, improves outcomes played into that. This is a time sensitive condition. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to the point that you had alluded to that there was a catheter that was continuously monitoring central venous saturations. And I think there, there was a little bit of a controversy that the catheter was actually, was it patented by Dr. Rivers? And so it gave uh, people a little bit of an ick right? Because that fact wasn't disclosed up front. It seems like an honest mistake, but uh, I think the reaction is warranted, right? Yeah, I think there was maybe even a little bit more than a little bit of an ick. I think, you know, it kind of turned people off and it kind of made people a little biased in their interpretation of the results. I think probably had at least some play in why three other groups did large trials that were very similar. The other interesting thing to to me is, is that the, the focus on the, the catheter led to another trial actually published in JAMA, which was a non-inferiority trial of whether or not a change in your lactate, a falling lactate, would be non-inferior to the continuous 70% SpO2 measurement from the from the catheter. And, you know, I think that showed that they, they got a little bit lucky because they were very underpowered to do a non-inferiority trial. And it actually turned out that the lactate was on the better side, um, not superior, but on the better side so that they could actually claim non-inferiority. But I think that was sort of the, the start of people thinking the concept of aggressive early resuscitation might be right and that you didn't necessarily have to have the catheter uh, in place to do it and to do it in a way that was beneficial to your patients. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should talk about Andromeda shock as one of our articles that we go over, the lactate yeah. clearance versus skin turgor, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, versus usual care. Yeah, a little bit of an older, kind of in that middle tier of not so old that it's a classic per se, but old that it's not in our last two or three years of bins of articles that we, studies that we might talk about. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put it on the to-do list, but that's all we have for episode 17 of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. If you have any questions, want to tell Todd that he got everything wrong or anything you want us to talk about in the future, including which article direction that you want us to want to help drive, you can hit us up at the ICU Ed and Toddcast at gmail.com on the social at ICUcast at Ed Chien, E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, again for sitting through in your insights. Thank you again to the study teams for all their hard work and congratulations on completion of trials. Uh, thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro and outro music. Thank you to everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Or at least save some pancreases. Uh, so, Eddie, did we get any feedback about my singing? <laughs>
No, we did not get any feedback on your singing. Other than the fact that a couple of people had emailed and said, hey, you know that K-A-R-S, Cars for Kids, uh, the it wasn't the kind of CK that was important. It was to make sure that you remembered the phone number. Yeah, of course. But it's a K for cars. Yes. So, I mean, there's still that. So I did get some actual feedback about my singing. Okay. But I have to say it was more about the concept of me singing in the podcast than it was really, hey, you're you're quite the singer and you should think about a career in music. Uh, it was more of Are a, you surprised that it wasn't positive feedback? Is that absolutely. what you're saying? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you're not surprised by that? I am not surprised that it was not positive. Yes. Got it. Well, uh, I think it is something that we probably should think about, you know, should we have me sing on every one of the podcasts? Yeah. I've, uh, I've thought about it at this point. My answer is no. So. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this podcast is for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked material is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable, but we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.